0: little bonus episode, and quite often these bonus episodes are because one or the other of us has written a book. But today we are talking about a book that neither of us wrote, but both of us have read and loved very much, named Sealed, An Unexpected Journey into the Heart of Grace by Katie Langston. Dad, I have read this book multiple times because first as a just as a friend reader and then as an editor and as a publisher, but you just read it for the first time. So why don't we just start with your initial reactions to it?
1: Wow, it's awfully hard to summarize such a rich book. Let me just uh, tick through a number of themes I caught in it, aside from the very interesting autobiographical account of her journey, uh, her uh, upbringing in um, Utah Mormonism, and her um, gathering rebellion against it, and her um, dive into uh, cultural uh liberalism as a way of breaking free from the shatters of fundamentalism uh, to her personal longing for God, uh, which was very Augustinian, the restless heart that does not rest until it rests in God, and her experience of conversion uh, to the uh, Augustinian Lutheran gospel of God's severe mercy uh, that theme comes up a number of times: uh, the severe mercy of learning to live by grace alone. Uh, so the, you know, it's a it's an autobiography that makes me think much of the autobiographies of Augustine and the Confessions, and of Martin Luther's own accounts of his suffering under the uh, uh, the rule of the late medieval monastery, and his image of God who demands perfection and sets us up for damnation uh, in a ultimately cruel way. And all the um, uh, ways she internalized this religious system of just uh, uh, of the law of works or the law of merit and how it created in her um, a kind of a, a human dualism between feelings and inclinations on the one side, and the spiritual desire for union with God on the other hand. So there's just a whole bunch of neat stuff in this story. And I would mention finally the um, revelations of Mormon theology and how Mormon theology actually works on the ground, uh, at least in her case, which I think is quite plausible uh, as a you know, a microcosm of the macrocosmic uh, Mormon theological system as a form of exquisite form of works righteousness.
0: Well, Dad, that was great because you just captured everything that made me love this book so much and get very excited to publish it. And I think for anyone listening to this, they will also see immediately, even if you never thought before you would want to read a coming-of-age memoir by an ex-Mormon, this this is the story for you. It is... all those Augustinian and Lutheran themes. And there is a reason why she ended up becoming a Lutheran. In fact, she learned many years later about Martin Luther. She saw a, a perfect mirror in, in many ways of her own experience. So let's uh, backtrack a bit because the book, as you said, it starts with her upbringing in Utah in a very intensely Mormon family and community. And um, I have to say that one of the many gifts of being friends with our, the author, Katie Langston is that um let's say that I, I have finally acknowledged the humanity of the Samaritans. <laughs> I think in my own mind, up until now, Mormons have always been the Samaritans and not like in the positive sense of the good Samaritan, but they're like that marginal, you know, as Samaritans were not properly Jewish, Mormons are not properly Christian. That's simply a comment on their actual sets of theology and beliefs. But also somehow I that for me was... Um, License not to take them seriously or pay them much honor or attention, though Mormons have such a reputation for being upstanding citizens. I also had the feeling that, you know, someday I'd be knocked to the side of the road and the Lutheran would pass me by and the Catholic would pass me by and the Presbyterian would pass me by. But doggone it, the Mormon would pick me up and get me to the hospital. So that's...
1: Yeah, very good, sir.
0: That's the space they've occupied in my mind. I also, I think until I met Katie, I only had known one Mormon personally in my life and not well, somebody I I went to college with. And the only thing I really remember about her is one time a discussion of polygamy came up and she was like, well, it's not that bad. And I was like, "Ugh, Mormon. So (laughs) I I had no opportunity really to to, um, humanize my picture. My husband, Andrew, by contrast, he grew up um, in Washington state and there were Mormons all around. And, you know, he, he again, didn't have any close relationships, but they all seemed to be doing fine. And they had huge families and drove big vans and all of their, uh, the children grew up to be, you know, class president and uh, star of the football team and Cedar and went out to great colleges. And so he was much less weirded out by them than I was. I I can't imagine. I mean, I, 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 you know, occasionally I remember as a kid, somebody would come to the door. But I think that was more often Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Have you ever had any real direct encounters with Mormons in your life?
1: Yeah, I think I have. Um, But that goes back to when I was a young Turk and uh, (laughs) probably in St. Louis and seminary or something. And Mormons came to the door and I invited them in and started (laughs) debating with them, you know, Uh, that was a pretty futile um, exercise, and I soon invited them to the door again. (laughs) Okay. They were, you know, the the caricature, uh, neat pressed uh, slacks, uh, a a perfectly ironed white shirt, and a, 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 a straight narrow tie and crew cuts. You know, they were just the image of wholesomeness.
0: Yeah. Oh, exactly.
1: But I had, Sarah, I had the had the impression when I was talking to them, every time I raised an objection, some switch in their brains would go off and out would come another tape with a canned answer. Yeah. And uh, at that point, that's when I invited them to the door.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that is part of the, the the Mormon formative process is you send... Uh, you know, two by two, very young men and also sometimes women. Katie went on a mission as well. You know, all over the world to places where they really can't talk to people well, often because they don't have the language to evangelize what everyone knows is almost certainly going to be a failed enterprise 99.9% of the times. But what it actually does is really shores you up in your identity and commitment because they've sent you out to be persecuted, basically, you know, or ignored or laughed or whatever. And you are not in a situation where you could have those real challenging conversations. That's not the point at all. And I don't think the point of Mormon missions is actually to convert anybody. It's to keep the ones who have gone it, you know, firmly anchored to, the, to the, the church, the home church.
1: Yeah. And this uh, particular author, Katie, uh, went on her mission trip to Bulgaria and she had uh, intense training in Bulgarian language. So I got a kick out of that part, Sarah, where yeah. uh, she... <laughs> Uh, transliterated into English, the Bulgarian phrases she was using. And of course, that's similar to Slovak. So I was trying to figure out the Bulgarian from my knowledge of Slovak.
0: Yeah, me too. She said when she read my memoir, she could, you know, piece together bits of the Slovak because of its similarity to Bulgarian. So this story really unfolds in in three parts. And um, I think the first part, again, if you, uh, she wrote the book I, primarily to speak to ex-Mormons, post-Mormons, and even to an extent present-day Mormons who are suffering under the same spiritual burdens she did. She's told me that by far the most common outcome for an ex-Mormon is to simply become an atheist or go to another very marginal religious expression like Wiccan or some kind of spiritualism of some kind. It's very rare for them to come into mainstream Christianity, or relatively rarer than just ditching religion altogether. And, you know, most of them have an experience of trauma around religion, so it's not surprising. So what she wanted to do is to reach out to those people and say, there is still a way to have God in your life. It doesn't have to be like it was before. And the the responses she's gotten have been tremendous of this. she She's really linked up and connected to that deep longing in ex-Mormons to get back with God in a way that isn't going to destroy them spiritually again. But for yeah. those of us who are like on the outside, which I'm guessing most of our listeners are, who listen to this, the the first part is going to be a bit of the car accident at the side of the road part, which is just kind of this window into Mormon beliefs, practices, cultures, um, and you know what becomes very clear at the beginning is a very unhealthy and unrealistic attitude towards sexuality, which you know is not is not totally foreign to parts of of mainstream christianity but there's this definite let's say the way it works is that you are not to have any sexual feelings whatsoever until you get married in the temple, because that's the best way to do it. And then you're sealed to one another for all eternity. And then you're supposed to flip the switch. And it's supposed to be awesome. And you're supposed to um, have lots of fun and make lots of babies. And then you're all supposed to stay Mormon so that you can be together in the afterlife on your planet for all eternity. So it's both um, very controlling and suspicious of sexual desire, um, even in sort of ordinary course, like not in particularly interestingly sinful ways. Just the ordinary course of sexuality is regarded with such suspicion. But then the stakes are so insanely high because getting your sexuality and your family life right is actually the foundation and goal of the afterlife and eternal happiness. And if you screw it up by screwing it around or even anything like (laughs) miles away from screwing around, you could lose it all forever and ever
1: you know, as I was reading this, Sarah, and I we can segue from sexuality to theology here shortly, um, it struck me again and again how Mormonism is a one of those fundamentalist reactions to modernity, which is unwitting or unaware of how deeply it's internalized uh, certain modern themes. And that the first one, of course, is, is anthropological dualism, uh, uh, and as you were just spelling it out with respect to human sexuality. uh, When Descartes defines the human self as the thinking thing over against the extended thing, uh, this dualism just stamps modernity. And people who don't realize that this is, uh, whatever tendencies anteceded this in some forms of Platonism, some forms of Gnosticism, some forms of uh, medieval monasticism. Uh, this was uh, ontologized uh, in Dakar in a way that stamps modernity. And so I think this is, uh, this, on the one hand, inflated idea of the thinking thing as a, a, a god in embryo waiting to uh, earn its wings and fly up Uh, to sovereignty in a new world, uh, leaving behind the shell of its uh, uh, outdated uh, humanity uh, and acquiring a divinized form of humanity in its its, uh, future life and so forth. It's a religious adaptation of modern dualism, I think.
0: That's so interesting. And in fact, you know, to make the bridge to to Mormon theology, God is not God the way human or sorry, God is not God the way Christians define God. God is actually just an an uber being within the set of beings and is something that has has progressed over time and gotten greater and will always somehow be ahead of us. We can't ever catch up to God, but God is basically a material object among the world of material objects, an extended thing that has somehow uh, transcended the the extension to become more purely spiritual, and yet still doesn't quite make it. But then the burden is so fully on human beings to spiritually achieve the way that God, uh, as as Mormonly conceived, um, has achieved. That, like you you said earlier in your summary, that it is a purely merit based system. I mean, I don't I don't think. Uh, medieval Catholicism may have gotten close, but I don't think I've ever seen a religious system that was so purely merit-based and so inflexible and unyielding as, as uh, classical Mormonism is.
1: Yeah, you know, that's also, Sarah, uh, several adaptions to modernity. Um, uh, one of the themes of the Enlightenment critique of religion was that doctrine divides but action unites. Uh, and there was a critique of the concern with faith and the object of faith that is uh, the burning concern in uh, classical Christianity, including Reformation Christianity, in favor of, um, of action. Um, uh, one notable uh, commentator on the Enlightenment said that uh, the need for human action uh, to solve the world's problems and overcome the pathological waiting upon the deity to fix our problems uh, was one of the major impetuses of the modern world and then combine that together, Sarah, with the turn the scientific turn to materialism as a comprehensive explanation of reality and also the discovery um, of the Milky Way galaxy and the vast quantity of other solar systems in the Milky Way galaxy that was occurring in the 19th century at the time when the Book of Mormon was being written. And so here you have, I see in Katie's account of Mormon theology, all these interesting adaptations to the current change in worldview that's going on in the 19th century. If there is a God, it's a, he he is, and I say the word he deliberately here, heavenly father. Heavenly father is how Mormons, according to Katie, talk about God. Heavenly father is one like us, a material being, as you said, who has progressed to to an advanced stage of sovereignty. And he has uh, created us in order that we, his children, would also mature on the same pattern and inherit our own planets uh, to govern and guide in the future. An adaption to scientific materialism and the discovery uh, of the Milky Way galaxy, which has, you know, 200 to 400 million solar systems in it or something like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's very interesting. All the ways you know the the founders picked up and recombined these themes, and um, I I think um, Katie's suspicions is that their intentions were were not honorable, and that history has been laundered to make it look better than it was to uh to, to reach the uh the wholesome picture of the missionaries and the commercials. I remember as a kid giving it a a, a new look and um more caffeine, less polygamy. But okay, so let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on to the um the uh the the kind of the second phase of the book or section of the book is when she's uh, to a certain extent um liberated an adult um she makes a good marriage um and but the the really the thing that changes for her at this point is the discovery of grace. And it's it's really it's a, a lovely story. She went to a lecture about C.S. Lewis and, you know, even Mormons like and read C.S. Lewis. And the person who was giving the talk, I can't remember his name, but he was kind of a, a prominent evangelical um, Christian writer and theologian, Um when, when asked, like you know, why why was Lewis helpful to him, or what did what did Christianity mean to him, he said basically, "I am so devastatingly aware of my weaknesses and failures that." if it were not for the grace of Christ, who truly covers them for me and forgives me and restores me, I simply couldn't go on. And she said it was the first time she ever heard a religious person admit in public to being a failure, even to their own religious aspirations, because that is simply not done in Mormonism. You you are always getting better every day in every way, and you never let on uh, if you do like if it doesn't work you just exit but the idea that you could be a religious person and name and claim your sins and yet carry on because christ loved you so much that the sins did not prevent him from loving you it was yeah she talks very movingly about as a child trying to figure out how to say heavenly father please forgive me all of my sins please forgive me all of my sins you know how could she say the prayer convincingly enough that God would deem her worthy and love her and now she was hearing the complete opposite story. No, God already loves you. God already forgives you. God's desire is nothing but to restore you. You don't have to earn it. It's given as a gift. Just come, come and take the living waters. She had never heard anything like that. And so in this, this next movement of the story, essentially now that she has found grace and the true and living Christ, the question is, can this true and living Christ reign in the Mormon church and in these Mormon communities she continued to participate in?
1: Right. And, you know, again, Sarah, as you're talking, another connection with our officially optimistic society in the modern world, in which progress is built into the nature of things every day in every way. We're getting a little bit better of a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Uh, you see in this officially optimistic theology of Mormonism, which believes that human beings are capable of self-divinization, are capable of self-theosis, that they can move themselves on. And and to admit otherwise is to, as, as in one angry exchange uh, Katie had with her father uh, about her disillusionment with Mormonism, he said, you're giving up, you're giving up your chance on eternal life. You're giving up your chance on living with us forever. You know, you're quitting. You're a quitter. That was, that was basically his pitch to his daughter. And I think Katie's response was basically, I, yes, I failed. I can't do this. I can't do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's deep and it's devastating, and the the psychic toll and the mental health toll it took on her was tremendous. And um, you know, spoiler alert: you can't do it. Grace does not fit within the Mormon system. It, it's not. Uh, I, she told me that she believes that there are some Mormon theologians who are who are trying, um, but and in her own judgment and experience, the, the DNA of this of this religious movements is is fundamentally, as you said, all these things. It's dualistic, it is merit-based, it is self-divinization based. It's not finally grace-based. You can't you can't just sort of like add grace as an a corrective afterthought to something that's so deeply premised on the exact opposite of grace.
1: Yeah, there's another factor involved here and that's what Ephraim Radner calls the contrastive identity machinery. Uh, as much as I'm suggesting that Mormonism, Mormonism is an adaptation to the modern spirit, unaware, uh, at the same time, it is deeply, um, deeply embedded in a Christ against culture kind of, uh, of uh, um, relationship to the rest of Christianity, which it regards as a historical defection and failure which had to be restored with the revelation given to Joseph Smith and so forth. So the sectarianism, the contrastive identity machinery, which admittedly is playing in all the modern Protestant denominational denominations as well, is especially exacerbated in Mormonism. If I can just make a brief anecdote of my own, uh, some years ago a Mormon theologian came to Roanoke College and uh, he was a kind of one of the probably one of the theologians Katie would uh, describe as trying to reform Mormonism from within. And during his presentation, Sarah, I noticed how often he was using uh, the historical criticism of the Bible uh, to make his argument. and uh, I thought that was interesting and afterwards, I spoke to him uh, after the lecture, and I said, "I'm just curious whether you would allow the same historical criticism of the Book of Mormon." Hmm. And he looked at me and said, "That's an excellent question." <laughs> that's that's all he said. <laughs> and I, I think that you know uh, that that you know many people suspect historically and critically that the Book of Mormon uh, was a novel written by a clergyman uh, on the American frontier, which upstate New York was at the time, uh, trying to make sense of the American uh, Indians, the indigenous peoples, and so forth and so on, and adapting to the modern cosmological discoveries, Uh, and that Joseph Smith found this manuscript and then claimed that it had come as a revelation uh, from the angel Moroni.
0: I I also know that the um, King James English is frequently grammatically incorrect in it, as if the person who was writing it didn't actually really know, but just had sort of passively heard the King James version of the Bible and then made it up. And it also refers to horses in the Americas before the European conquest. There were no horses in the Americas before the European conquest. So, you know, it, it doesn't even take much of a scholar to figure out that something something funny is going on here and so finally we get to the the third and final section of the book where she realizes the tremendous but necessary cost of making a break with mormonism because it isn't it isn't possible to have christ it isn't possible to have grace within the mormon system but the sense of treachery to her family is enormous you know her husband stays within the mormon folds though um he didn't really become very serious about it until her <laughs> somewhat ironically she was a lot more serious when they married than he was and um just the the tremendous break involved in exiting, and you know, as with sectarian groups the the purpose is to exact a cost when someone leaves, but at this point they've um They've moved to the Twin Cities in Minnesota, and she's um, trying to figure out what she wants to do next with life and ends up in a program that brings her to Luther Seminary. And so that final bit is about how she starts taking classes at a Lutheran seminary and with excellent professors, some of whom are good friends of ours as well. Um, and what, basically what has to happen is Mormon Mormonism uses all the same vocabulary, many of the same um, rites and symbols as Christianity, but they all mean something different. So, for instance, Mormons are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but what ha- what that baptism means is not what Christians mean when they baptize at all. So it's very confusing, and there's a lot of disentangling that has to take place. So she talks about her seminary education, and she ends up working at Luther Seminary as well in, in a kind of like and outreach um, development program and gradually has her her whole sense of what these words mean utterly transformed. Uh, the one that I was most struck by was the word prophet, because in Mormonism, the prophet is, of course, Joseph Smith, but it's also the, the living reigning elders who just decree from on high what you can and can't do and can and can't believe and can and can't drink. And so to have the, the Old Testament sense of prophet come to replace that sense of prophet was was a huge thing. And how she finally even reconciled with the Bible because her experience of holy texts also was so intensely negative that to to come to the holy scripture, the Christian Bible, and see it not as a a set of laws or judgments against her, but as actually the the cradle in which the Christ child lies was uh, another of the many gifts she got from her education there, which finally led her towards discerning a call to be a pastor which um, she is is um, headed towards very soon, I'm very excited to say. But actually, that's not the apex. The apex moment, somewhat surprisingly, is the realization, wait a minute, if Mormon baptism and Christian baptism aren't the same thing, here I am studying to be a pastor, I go to church, I take communion, I'm learning to preach, have I actually been baptized?
1: Uh, yeah, I found this section of the book very moving and interesting as well. Um, And the two professors uh, at Luther Seminary, okay, well, you were referring to Catherine Schifferdecker, who was so helpful to her in uh, uh, insisting that in spite of her um, reaction against uh, Biblicism from the Mormon Biblicism, Uh, that she needed to deal with uh, the text of scripture seriously, even when it's alienating and even when it's difficult. Uh, And um, uh, because there's a kind of a fundamental trust that through these wounded healers, through these broken human emissaries of God, the healing word of the gospel will come through. And so Schifferdecker was a great help to her, and I, we should mention that Katie tells us that she had liberated herself from the toxic religiosity uh, that she was escaping in a kind of a standard standard uh, uh, American liberalism, you know re- like you know rejecting fundamentalism, rejecting literalism, rejecting affirmative theology, cataphatic theology. Uh, kind of taking refuge in a view of the God as ineffable, beyond speech, uh, unsayable, uh, and these kinds of themes that are so typical for ex-fundamentalists. And she points out how she held on to her newfound liberalism as a defense against Mormonism, uh, and how difficult it was for her to let the Bible challenge this secular liberalism, which had liberated her from the clutches of fundamentalism. Uh, And um, the other professor who played a big role in Katie's uh, reframing of her uh, faith was Lois Malcolm, who taught her uh, the doctrine of the Trinity and Luther's motif of the joyful exchange. And, uh, and Katie just found that the joyful exchange concretized the grace that she had been experienced Christologically. It made it very clear to her how Christ is the instantiation of divine grace that actually succeeds in taking our sin from us and giving us in its place Christ's righteousness. And that this uh, Christ uh, is uh, not, you know, uh, just a fellow human being on his way to divinization, but instead the triune God reaching out to humanity and grasping hold of us never to let go. Uh, And this too was a quite an insight for her because she finally realized that the true functioning god in mormonism is the plan and right. the plan is what the whole religion is all about and so instead of having the living loving god of the father and the son and the holy spirit what she had had and called god was the plan <laughs> uh, so that you graduate to be from being an earthling to being a junior deity and living forever with your forever family and having sovereignty over a new world and things like this. And I, one last thought here in this, uh, she had a friend who was, a, I think, also an ex-Mormon that in North Carolina that she visited. The name is escaping me at the moment. But she was haunted uh, uh, in her uh, apostasy from Mormonism by a dramatic uh, scene in the temple ceremony when a personified figure of Satan uh, 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 warned her uh, of his wrath if she departed from Mormonism. And uh, this figure of Satan in the temple ceremony just wouldn't quit on her. She was just haunted by it. And she went to this friend in North Carolina uh, for some uh, friendship and support. And the friend said to her, you know, you are haunted by Satan. You are haunted by Satan. Who do you belong to, Jesus or Satan? And Katie Katie reports that this was like stunning to her. It had never been put to her with such force. And then the friend said further, you're in a state of spiritual warfare. Oh, my God, Katie said, this is exactly what I'm trying to escape. I don't want to go there. (laughs) But, But this apocalyptic theology finally broke through to her she finally realized that indeed she was haunted by Satan, whatever that may be, and uh, wanting instead uh, the lordship of the saving Jesus in its place. I thought that was quite fascinating as well.
0: Extraordinary, extraordinary. And you know what what gave her permission finally to go fully to Jesus was to reconcile with her dead grandmother, which is also interesting. She the the story is is set up and it's interspersed with accounts of her ancestors, which of course is a very Mormon interest, obsession even and i i was really moved and touched how she was able to to take that interest in our forebears and and truly give it a christian baptism like undo the mormon baptism on it and and apply a christian baptism and it finally came down to her having to like think through in her mind what it would mean to her her Christian grandmother who converted to Mormonism to say, I don't understand why you did that. I hope you can forgive me for what I'm about to do. And then precisely because she needed to be released from the grip of Satan, whatever that meant, uh, she finally, in conversation with Catherine Schifferdecker, said, I have not received a Christian baptism. I need to be baptized. And so Catherine was the one to baptize her. And this is the most, this is actually how I, I first met Katie, is hearing this story. The most gorgeous and powerful. baptism story I've ever heard, that when she was baptized in a Christian church in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the one that Christians mean, not the one that Mormons mean, she said she actually, in that moment, Satan's grip was truly broken. And she just felt all the, the darkness physically drain out of her body, as well as spiritually drain out of her mind, and that she was transferred truly body and soul from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and fully belonged to Jesus and, and fully belonged in a state of grace and no more in this conditional merit or worthiness or fundamental uncertainty about her belovedness. So it is just, it's a wow.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it is a wow. It moved me to tears at the end, getting to this point, but just to backtrack on grandma Ackerman and her, uh, Uh, story and Katie's reconciliation in the end with her own past, lest the whole account we're giving sound like Christian triumphalism over against the nasty Mormons. uh, Katie uh, uh, reconstructs her grandmother's conversion to Mormonism uh, in the fact that um, she uh, belonged to a Methodist church, um, which um, um, required baptism uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, but she had a infant child who died before it could be baptized, and found out uh, that she could get no assurance of the uh, fate of the child uh, uh, from her pastor who simply said, without baptism, I can give you no assurance of anything. And the cruelty of that, uh, of that pastoral treatment of her grandmother, Katie speculates, was one of the reasons why the, uh, um, the appeal of the Mormon missionaries and their claim that uh, it, with Mormon baptism, the infant child could indeed be uh, belong to their forever family, uh, was uh, the compelling reason for Grandma's conversion. Uh, so, here is a uh, here is a uh, a warning against Christian triumphalism in Katie's story. Uh, that there's plenty of Mormon-like fundamentalism within historic. Uh, classical Christianity. Uh, The germ of Mormonism is within historic Christianity. And it's a long, painful, ongoing struggle to free ourselves from what Paul calls the law of works in order uh, to let grace abound uh, and abound exceedingly. Uh, And that has a lot to do, Sarah, also with the realization, Katie's realization, uh, we are not God. We are earthlings. And that's okay. That's good. That's good enough. That's good enough to be an earthling. Let God be God.
0: Yeah, you know, that really says in the end why I wanted to publish this under my own Thornbush Press, because I thought that, you know, One of the things the book does is because it's in Mormonism, it offers a little bit of distance, but I know a lot of Christians who have had at least parallel experiences, maybe not to this degree or with some of the the things that we regard as just silly or bizarre, but, but that, you know, Mormonism is an offshoot of Christianity and of a particularly toxic form of it. So it's warnings are alive. And, you know, Katie's been a Christian long enough now not to have any illusions that just because you, uh, you have better doctrine and practice, you automatically get everything right. That certainly, certainly is not true. I I just wanted to, since you brought up the, uh, the, grandmother and the the dead baby brother um the, or sorry the the dead child issue you know one of the ways that mormons market themselves is because they baptize on behalf of the dead. You get, you get, b- get baptized for dead people and they justify it with, with, I think first 1 Corinthians 1529, where Paul says, it, it's weird because it's a rhetorical question. He says, otherwise, why do you get baptized on behalf of the, the dead? It's, it's referring to something that clearly the Corinthians are doing. And, you know, we, we know the Corinthians are not exactly like the apex of Christian spiritual practice either, but you know, this is, <laughs> this is such an early, um, practice uh, that also vanished really early. And, you know, my my guess is that when people start coming into Christianity and realize that through Jesus's salvation, how could they not immediately panic? But what about my dead mother? What about my ancestors? What about all the people before me? And I know a lot of people today are stressed out when they think about global mission, because they think, are you saying that every, every person on the planet who never heard of Christianity or got baptized automatically goes to hell because of their bad luck but you know ultimately that applies to everyone's ancestors maybe we don't care so much because we just don't you know our non-christian an- ancestors are farther and farther back in history but it's a real question and here's here's my wild speculation dad but i wonder if the comments in first and first peter which are very late in the new testament canon chronologically about christ descending into hell and liberating the dead i wonder if that was the solution that emerged that Um, did away with, or it addressed the same need that baptism on behalf of the dead did, but it did it all at once, and it made it more Christ-centered rather than the actions of Christians getting baptized for the ancestors centered.
1: Well, yes, I think that's right. And uh, the first theologian I ever read to that effect was Wolfhard Pannenberg, talking about the descent into hell as the proclamation of liberation for the souls kept in captivity there, something like that. Um, But I think you could connect this also with Katie's Augustinian theme of longing, of desire, desire that could finally only be satisfied in the one true and living God, which she finally discovers is the Trinity uh, of the gospel. Um, That desire can be there, in, all, in fact, we would expect the desire for God, uh, however uh, inchoate, however inarticulate, we would expect the desire for God to be found in all human beings made in the image of God for likeness to God. Uh, and therefore, uh, the souls that are kept in the realm of the dead, Sheol, Hades, whatever you want to call it, uh, or hell even, Uh, when Christ, the risen Christ comes as their liberator, uh, many will recognize him as the one they've longed for, the one who takes away their sin to give them his righteousness in its place, the one who takes away their death in order to give them his life. And they will welcome him. And this is not uh, any kind of doctrine of universal salvation. That's an abstraction uh, that is off, off, off key. What it is, is a Christological and interpretation of the universal human longing for God. And that's part of that longing is what makes us truly human. According to Christian theological anthropology.
0: Yeah, wonderfully said. And so that leads me, I guess, to the last thing I'd like to say about this book and why I love it so much is that it would be really easy to write an angry memoir—the one that whose whose through line and and bright 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 red thread is just fury at having having had this done to her and had all these false beliefs and oppressive practices visited upon her. And there are a lot of uh, memoirs of Religious people that are that. And there, you know, I think there's a place for those. But what I love about this book is that she wrote it when Grace had even been able to transform her own memories and experiences of Mormonism. And she was able to look and and identify clearly the gifts that it gave to her, the blessings it gave to her. And in the end, she's able to say, Mormons long for the right thing. What they don't understand is that they already have those things in Christ. That is the point of grace. It's already been given to them. And they're right to care about what we do sexually. They're right to care about family. They're right to care about community and uprightness and education and all these things Mormons value. The problem is that they think they're all conditional and it puts them in this uh, torturous, this hamster wheel of trying to earn them, when in fact, to Christ in Christ, all these things are already given. And so, that the title of the book sealed is this um, Mormon rite of it's something like consecration to God. And she can finally switch that around and say, Christ is himself our sealing to God. So as, as Paul would say, Christ himself is our righteousness. To a, a Mormon audience who understands this terminology, she can say, Christ himself is our sealing. We already have it. We don't have to earn it. And I found that to be just a breathtaking expression of grace and how grace can transform even a very ugly experience into something that can be transcended and made beautiful and fruitful.
1: Amen. And uh, God will bless the congregation, which is lucky enough, uh, blessed enough uh, to get Katie Langston as their pastor. I look forward to watching her career.
0: Yes, me too. Me too. So if you have been tremendously moved by hearing our our enthusiasms for this book, please hop over to thornbushpress.com or Amazon or wherever you like to buy your books, Sealed by Katie Langston.